From the home studios of the MIT Teaching Systems Lab, this is Teach Lab. I'm your host, Justin Reich. Today, we're talking with Daniel Wendell about modeling complex systems and modeling the coronavirus. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us today. Hello. Thanks for having me. Daniel, how did you find yourself at MIT studying how students learn from models? Sure. I started as an undergraduate student at MIT. And I was uh, studying computer science and met a professor called Eric Klopfer um, and started working with him on modeling tools. And then over time, I just became more interested in the modeling and have been able to work with him ever since. So this may seem like a totally simple question, but I think it's worth unpacking from the beginning. What is a model and how does a computational model differ from other kinds of models? Sure. I think everybody knows what a model is. I mean, everyone knows about a model airplane, for example. Um, people have seen an atomic model, which is those balls and sticks that are you know, held together. Um, so a model is just a way of representing something in a simplified way so that we can understand it better. And what makes a computational model different is that uh, instead of something like a model airplane that is meant to look like an airplane, but it uh, doesn't fly like an airplane, um, a computational model is more about uh, replicating the behaviors or representing the behaviors um, as they change over time. So the modeling tool that you most work with is one called Star Logo. Um, and people my age will remember the logo programming language that Seymour Papert developed at MIT. Um, how does Star Logo build off of Logo? Right. Star Logo, or sorry, Logo had a single turtle and you could give it commands. And Star Logo, the star is for many. Um, and in Star Logo, we can have thousands or even tens of thousands of these computational entities that we call agents who we can give them commands and then we can see how they interact with each other. Great. So when I played around with Logo when I was a kid, I would, you know, say forward 100, right 90, and the and more instructions like that. And then a turtle would draw a house. Um, and what you can do is sort of randomly sprinkle a thousand turtles on a screen and tell them all to go forward, right 90, until they bump into another turtle, and then go backwards 90 and right 10 or whatever it is, and start seeing what kinds of patterns emerge. Uh, from those different kinds of emergent behaviors of thousands of turtles that are doing things that were programmed, but the combination of their actions is unexpected. Is that a good way of summarizing? Yeah, in Logo, you know exactly what you're going to get. I mean, you're trying to get something specific, whereas in Star Logo, um, a lot of times we're trying to see what happens that we didn't exactly program in explicitly. It's that emergent behavior, as you said. And so all of this then is about trying to make sense of complex models and complex systems. There's all kinds of complex systems that people encounter in the world and in schools of population growth and biology and all kinds of other things. When you all are trying to use these complex systems models in a curriculum, when you're trying to teach something through a model, what's your kind of go-to pedagogical strategy that teachers or parents can use when thinking about teaching with complex computational models? Sure. Well, so there are two uh, important things. One is um, this connection between the individual and the group. Um, so being able to think about a complex system from the perspective of an individual within that system, and then also thinking about just how the overall system works. Um, and 
uh, one way of, of getting those two perspectives is through an agent-based modeling experience um, like StarLogo, where you can think about how the actions of the individual lead to that, the collective. Um, so usually we'll, we'll follow what we call the use, modify, create progression. Um, we'll start with a computational model that we've built, and we can have the students run some experiments, do some exploration, and uh, learn about the topic that we're modeling that way. Um, after that, once they've gotten a feel for it, we can guide them through modifying that model to represent something in a different way or in a better way. And then finally, they can, as they become more fluent with the tools, they can begin to create their own computational models of complex systems. So the cool thing about Star Logo is that there's kind of like a front of the house and the back of the house. In the front of the house, you see this uh, space in which a model is unfolding and you can change a couple of the parameters, but then you can kind of go into the back of the house in which you see a programming environment and you can reprogram that environment first by modifying individual lines of code or individual blocks or other things like that. Um, and then later on by just starting from scratch, kind of creating your own. So when you talk about use, modify, uh, create. Um, the use happens when you're in the front of the house kind of playing around with the things. The modify is when you sort of have students dip quickly into the back of the house, change a few things, and then go back in the front of the house and see what it looks like. And then create is kind of starting from scratch or starting from a template to create uh, to create something new. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's important to have that back of the house, uh, even if you're just in the, the use stage. Because one of the things with emergent models is that um, if you don't understand the rules behind it, you might just think that we put those emergent things into the model. You know, people are always inventing things that the model did, but being able to see into the back of the house, you can see those rules were never actually programmed into this model. It just kind of happened uh, as a result of the other rules that we did program into that model. Great. And that's a whole no notion of sort of epiphenomenal behavior that a bunch of individual agents can be programmed to do specific things. Um, and then when each of those individual agents follows their own behavior, there's some kind of group behavior that emerges from that that wasn't programmed into the model, um, but emerges from the, the instructions that were given and the interactions between the individual agents. Let's get concrete yeah. by talking about a coronavirus model, because um, sure. this is something that I think a lot of teachers and parents are thinking about right now. How can we help students understand what's happening with the coronavirus? Was with closures, with reopenings, with these debates, by trying to model what happens as a virus goes through a population. Um, so you all built uh, a coronavirus model using Star Logo. Um, where can people find this, and what what will it look like when they when they get to the screen where this model is? Sure. So we put together a website called virusmodel.org, and on that website. You can, you can see the written description, and then as you scroll down the page a little bit, there is the star logo model uh, running on that page. And on the, the top third of that portion, um, you'll see this the 3D simulation area where you can click on some buttons, set up and mingle. Um, and that's how you can uh, give these, these little creatures, these agents, their instructions to begin the simulation. And so the things that you can set up in advance are how many kind of agents are in the little mini world, 
Um, and then what else can you modify from the, you know, how many of them start as infected, how infectious they are, what, what else can you change to start the model with? Right. So the way we've made it is there are 3000 of these agents and one of them is infected to begin with. Um, you could of course go into the code go, um, and, and change that into the, the back of the house, as you said. Um, we also have three sliders and those sliders indicate how often people are washing their hands or like um, when there are little virus particles, how often those get cleaned up. There's another one for people covering their coughs and that just limits the spread of the virus particles. And then there's a third slider for uh, social distancing. We, we call it the social circle size. And the social circle size controls how far away the agents stay from each other or? Uh, it's, it's pretty funny. Uh, it's, it's kind of a pun. Because these little agents walk around in this world in circles. Ah. And, and so if you, if you make that slider big, then they walk in really big circles. And so over the course of their day, that means they are going to interact with a bunch of other circles that are all, you know, that are all big. Whereas if everyone's circle is really small, the number of agents that, each, that any one agent is going to come in contact with is going to be a lot smaller. So I, as a user of the model, can then take these 3,000 agents, I can set them up to follow these different rules. Maybe one of the most important ones is, am I going to walk in tight little circles sort of near where I started? Am I going to walk in big circles all across the field? Um, and that, so I set some parameters that decide that, and then I run the model, and what will I see when I run the model? Right. You'll be able to see the spread of, uh, of this, uh, the virus. There is one button for mingling, which is just they're all moving around. And there's another button that you can click that shows the trails of the infected agents. Um, and also when the agents become infected, they turn red. Um, so you'll be able to watch this red boundary kind of moving outward from the middle. Um, and we also have a little sneeze or cough that happens where some little particles go out from the infected ones. And so you'll be able to see as these coughs are, are going out, whenever they bump into an uninfected agent, then that one will turn red and you, you see the spread uh, um, going from the middle of this little town out to the edges. And so what I can do then with this model is I can set all you know people to move very little and tell them to um, cover their mouths and to not sneeze so much. And then the virus, does the virus still always infect everyone or are there, um, is it a model of how slowly it spreads um, or are there in fact some people that can remain kind of protected in this particular model? Right. Um, it's almost always, almost everyone gets infected in the model that we've done. Um, but what you can see is that if you're interacting with fewer people, the virus spreads a lot more slowly. And so we have a line graph in the corner of the model that shows how many people are currently infected. And, uh, and you can see how the smaller social circles really flatten that curve, as everyone has, has been talking about. Um, and you, we can keep the, the number of infected at any given moment down below um, what we call the care capacity uh, of that town. Whereas if people have large social circles, then a lot of people will get infected very quickly. And, you know, the number of infected will go way past the care capacity. But there are some scenarios where you can actually make this virus die out in the model. If you shrink the social circles all the way down and you crank hand washing all the way up and covering your cough all the way up, then it is possible to have a person get better before they infect the next person 
and then you can actually stop the the spread in its tracks that way in the in that little town right so if you were to have uh, teachers or parents uh, doing le- you know using this model to try to help a fifth grader or sixth grader um, make sense of what's going on in the world right now, what steps would you encourage them to use with this model? Or there are lots of other coronavirus modeling tools that are out there. This is just one example of them. Um, and so how do we how do we how would you think about um, a, a computational model like this fitting into a sequence of learning that I might do over a couple of days with my kids or something like that. Sure. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that, uh, as as Box said, all models are wrong, but some are useful, and and this model is useful for certain things, um, and it's really good at looking at the effect of that social circle size on on how quickly a virus spreads. Um, so if you've already set up that conversation then a good place to begin would just to run, be to run a series of controlled experiments on this model. Uh, try setting it up with really large social circles and uh, run, you know, click setup, click mingle, and let the model run until it's all done. Um, only takes a couple of minutes. And then you'll be able to see how that curve looked and how many people got infected. And then just go through a series of values for that social circle and see how uh, reducing the number of contacts that everyone has through the day can really flatten that spread. And in the extreme, you can actually be left with people in this town who never got infected at all. Great. And so, you know, I might like keep a little lab notebook or start with a piece of paper and say, all right, here are the values that I started with. Here are the effects afterwards. Let's see how they change as they grow and shrink. And I can sort of play around with the model that way. And then if I'm working with a student who's sort of really excited about this and I want to start playing around with the, with the functions of the model itself and go into the back of the house, how would I go about doing that? And what are some good sort of first things to try there? Sure. Um, so lower down on that page, below that 3D area, is the blocks programming area. And that's where this whole, the code for this whole model is. Um, there are a couple of interesting things to try. One is to change the population density you know, change how many people are in this town and see how that affects things. And you can do that by changing the number of, of people that are created when you click that setup button. Um, and that's just a number on one of those blocks. Um, another interesting thing is to, uh, is to think about what it means to have a vaccine. Um, you know, so in a, in a case where you have a vaccine, what you're doing is, um, giving immunity to some portion of the population, whoever, you know, however many people can get that vaccine. And so you can do some experiments where instead of making all of the agents yellow to begin with, which indicates that they are uninfected, um, you could change some of that code so that some portion of them are yellow, but some of them start as blue, which is what we use to indicate immune. Um, and you could actually do a whole series of experiments there on, on the concept of herd immunity. Like, how many people need to get the virus or be vaccinated um, before so many people are immune that the virus will not be able to spread through that population? Um, How hard is it to learn how to change these underlying code blocks if I already had some experience with the block-based programming language like Scratch or things like that? Would I be pretty ready to jump right into it if I wanted to learn more? What are some good ways of of going deeper, deeper into this? Um, on the on our website, um, the uh, education.mit.edu, we have a, a link to the project page for Star Logo Nova, 
And there we have a couple of tutorials um, that, in fact, one of them is an epidemic uh, building tutorial. So that's a great place for people who want to get into the create part of it. Um, they can learn more about the blocks, and uh, we have some ideas for modifications to make. Um, but it's easy enough, e even without any of that. If you just look at the blocks and just read what they say, um, it says, like, create uh, 3,000 people. And, you know, you could change that number. So it kind of depends how deep you want to get into it. Um, but being able to make those changes that I just mentioned, you should be able to just scroll down to that block part and and look at it and understand it. If you've programmed in Scratch before, uh, you totally have a leg up. Um, it should it should come fairly easily. The only difference is that in Scratch, you make one sprite at a time, you know, and you you give that one sprite its instructions, and then you move on to the next sprite. But as I mentioned in Star Logo, you create thousands of these things. Um, and so we have a single tab for the people, and it has one set of instructions, but you just have to understand that those instructions are applied to all 3,000 of those agents in the model. What are the misconceptions that people are most likely to develop looking, say, at the particular model that you developed, and then how do you attend to that? I mean, one of the things we said at the beginning about models is that all models are wrong, some are useful. Um, so this one sounds like it's useful for understanding certain kinds of dynamics. What would be the kinds of things that you would warn um, kids and pa parents not to overread into this particular model? Yeah, one of the things that we simplified in this model is the idea of time. So we wanted you to be able to have an interesting experience and, and learn about things in a, <laughs> in a fun, short amount of time. Um, so we didn't do a great job of representing how long things actually take. Um, so it's not a good idea to run some simulations on this model and say, oh, that's great. That means we just need to keep things closed down for two minutes. And then after that, everyone will be fine. <laughs> and I mean, in general, all of the kind of the numerical accuracy of the model or like, like precision is not there. Um, what, what we've tried to do is represent uh, the behaviors and the, the kinds of, of relationships between like social distancing and the spread of the disease or hand washing and the spread of the disease. Um, but you don't want to run those, those experiments and come away and say, it's this number of days and you have to wash your hands this number of times. Um, much more complicated models would be used for those kinds of, uh, I guess, predictive modeling tasks. And then one of the things that strikes me that older students might be able to do with this is to then start reading a little bit about the conversations happening online amongst epidemiologists to figure out what parts of their models they're still exploring and trying to figure out. Like, as I understand it, one of the questions that still remains um, not precisely estimated is this uh, unit, this variable called R0, which is how many people, if someone gets sick, how many people do they then go on to infect? Um, and if the R naught of the virus is high, if it's three or four or five, if every sick person goes on and on average affects three or four or five other people, um, then because of exponential growth, you, you know, that's part of how we see this kind of uh, global pandemic happening. And that the task of social distancing, of all of these other uh, strategies for mitigating the the spread of the virus is to get R naught below one so that each person who gets infected goes on to infect fewer than one people. But epidemiologists still don't actually know 
what the R naught of their of this virus is, or how the R naught changes in different kinds of places or conditions or other things like that. Um, and so they're running a whole lot of studies to be able to get more precise estimates of these kinds of numbers, which they can then plug into their models. Um, which uh, you know, you know, your the model that you're generating is trying to sort of develop some conceptual understanding. Epidemiologists are trying to build models that tell us well exactly how much are we at risk, how much are we at risk of different kinds of, but in some ways, you know, very similar to yours. How much are we at risk at different kinds of scenarios of social distancing? Yeah, and it's funny because R naught is an emergent phenomenon of of that virus. That uh, if everyone were socially distancing themselves to begin with, then the R naught would be measured as being lower. Um, so it's kind of a property of the virus, but it's also kind of a property of the society that that virus is traveling through. And and you can think, you know, and, and I mean, part of what we're having debates on right now in society is how much does universal mask wearing reduce the transmissibility of that, which is exactly what your kind of your it, what your model has a simplified version of around coughing and other, you know, covering your coughs and other kinds of things. Um, and then what people are starting to do in the real world to say, well, okay, in places in East Asia where it's relative, where, where because of the history of swine flu and other kinds of things, it's not hard to get the whole population to wear masks. How do we think that affects transmissibility versus Europe where that's less common versus America, those kinds of places? Yeah. And, and it's interesting because we just had to program some assumptions into our model. Um, our cover your cough slider uh, what that does is changes the number of particles that are generated and how far they go away from from people. Um, but at the same time, we just assumed that if a person comes into contact with a particle, then uh, they're going to get infected. But you know, in real life, it's much more complicated. There, there's all this uh, research about what is the viral load that is necessary to actually create an infection, and so what is the probability of infection after coming into contact with some infected droplets. So all of these areas that are being researched, you know, we had to make some assumptions and program those in. And those are things that uh, someone who's interested in modeling and who's reading about this stuff could actually go into our model and change some of those things as well. You could, you could change the probability of transmission right there in the collision block uh, between a, a person and, uh, and a part uh, or a droplet, as we call it. What else would you encourage people who are playing students or parents playing around with these models? You know, they use some, they modify some. Uh, what other kinds of good learning steps would be in a sort of sequence or progression of a few days of playing around with these kind of models to learn more? Or for people who are super excited based on what they're learning, where else should they should they dig in and explore? Right. Well, I mentioned our website, education.mit.edu. Um, that's the place where we've posted the link to those tutorials. We have some tutorials on um, modeling an epidemic. We have some on ecosystems. We also have some just game programming tutorials where you can program a paintball game. So those are good places to develop that, uh, that literacy, that, that skill of being able to create the model as you want it to be. Uh, I would definitely recommend going there. There's also... Um, a great project called Project Guts, and Guts stands for Growing Up Thinking Scientifically. Um, and they've created several different models of all kinds of things from uh, the greenhouse effect and you know global climate change uh, to epidemics, um, 
uh, chemistry, a bunch of different things. So also check out uh, Project Guts. Um, and, and some of those things are available on, I think it's projectguts.org. Definitely the website teacherswithguts.org is where there are a bunch of teacher resources um, and forums for, for teachers who want to support their students in, in this kind of modeling. It's great. Um, well, I think there are a lot of folks out there who are trying to make some study of the coronavirus be part of their at-home curriculum. Um, and these seem like some great tools to help people be able to tackle that. Um, so Daniel, thanks so much for spending some time with us today, talking us through how we can play around with some computational models on the web and what we can learn from them. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Justin Reich. Thanks for listening to Teach Lab. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Daniel Wendell from MIT's Education Arcade. You can find links to all the simulations and tutorials that Daniel mentioned at our show notes and at virusmodel.org. Be sure to subscribe to Teach Lab to get future episodes on how educators from all walks of life are tackling remote learning during COVID-19. This episode of Teach Lab was produced, edited, and mixed by Garrett Beasley. Stay safe, everyone. Until next time.